Hey there. Welcome back to The Kicker, the Columbia Journalism Review's weekly journey through the funhouse that is modern media. I'm David Uberti. I'm a staff writer for CJR. we got a great pod for you this week. I will be chatting with veteran healthcare writer Trudy Lieberman about how media organizations are or are not covering the Republican Party's attempt to overhaul the U.S. healthcare system. Trudy's an expert on this stuff, and she thinks coverage of the Senate GOP's plan has been woefully lacking. We will unpack that further in a few. But first, I want to turn to women's publications. I don't know why I'm using air quotes. And joining me to debate if and when they're good are two CGR staffers with strong opinions on the topic, senior editor Christy Chisholm. Christy, how's it going? Hello. And I just used air quotes to say hello. <laughs> it was Dave. a non-sarcastic hello. Yeah. <laughs> and also, <laughs> and also Delacorte fellow Meg Dalton. Meg. Hey, I do have strong opinions. Good. I'm, <laughs> I'm very glad to hear that. So earlier this month, the Washington Post launched The Lily, which is a new product tailored to attract more millennial women to post content. It's entirely off-platform, meaning that it repackages post content on Medium, which is a publishing platform, Facebook, Instagram, and elsewhere. When it was launched, a Post editor said in a press release that it would allow them to more freely experiment with how we present post-journalism and see if we can capture a new audience we wouldn't otherwise have. This initiative has the potential to be a model for how we distribute post-content in the future. So that sparked some debate over the utility of women's publications generally, and I want to get to that broader question in a bit. But first, Meg, what do you make of the lily? I loved the concept of it. I thought in theory it was a really great idea, but in execution I was incredibly disappointed, primarily because of a word that you said, which is repackaged. It's repackaging the news in a way that kind of is condescending uh, and patronizing to a quote, millennial audience. Like it's, 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 it's intended audience is millennial women, like people like my age in my late 20s. Sure. And I feel like when I go onto the website, it's conveying that I'm not able to read the Washington Post for some reason. Right. Do you, do you just know. think that just by nature of it being outside of the WashingtonPost.com or is there a specific way that the content is repackaged that you think is condescending? Well, at the start of every single article, they say something like adapted from a Washington Post article. And the article on the lily is 25% the length of, say, an article in the Washington Post in its original form, which is like kind of dumbing it down, in my opinion. If the Post wants to have a separate site aimed at women's issues great, man. I would be like all about that. Hmm. That's awesome. But aggregating content and and basically, like, like, I don't know, when you take a story and then you aggregate in some way that makes it easy to digest on a different platform like Snapchat or whatever, that's a totally different thing because it's a different medium. You're taking the same subject and you're distilling it into a different medium so that it translates for a different readership. But taking something and then just rewriting it to sound a little bit fluffier or easier or whatever it is doesn't do anything other than kind of insult the intelligence of your audience. I mean, it would still be insulting to millennials as a whole if it was just like, here's our new platform for millennials. Men and women of younger age, come here and (laughs) partake in our offering. I don't know what this voice, I don't know what that is, but like (laughs) that would be different. But then the fact that they're doing that, like why isn't, you know, and I know why, but like why isn't the post like, here's our site for Young, you for millennial men, and wouldn't you love to hear about 
sports cars and how to wax your beard. Do people wax their beard? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't Whatever. Do. <laughs> I, don't, I don't grow much well, facial hair, so I'm not sure. They make beard wax. Yeah. Like, you know, that's a different kind of wax. Anyway, my point, that's, I digress. I right. digress. But I She's from Brooklyn. <laughs> I yeah. think I think that's like the biggest takeaway and he framed it very succinctly which is insulting the intelligence of. It's also confusing too because the whole history of the lily like the lily st- was the first ever women's women's in quotations publication again I'm not really sure what women's publication means anymore. Right. Yeah. Um but like it wasn't a radical publication like it wasn't like it was like the super feminist or you know, founded by suffragettes or anything like that. It started as kind of this magazine, or I don't even know what it was, magazine, like a letter or something that reinforced stereotypes about women in domesticity in general. So I guess maybe it, it's it, appropriate. Yeah, maybe it is appropriate. Yeah. I don't know. And I think the framing of like the different verticals too on this site is just like reinforces this idea of like women only care about certain issues. You know, I was saying before that I really like reading about foreign policy, but like. On the Lily, it seems like a lot of it is number one personal essays, which is something that a lot of women writers get pigeonholed mm-hmm. into Definitely. in general. Yeah. And that's yep. just like across the internet and magazines too, which again, I love really well-written essays, but I don't think women should be pigeonholed just no. to be writing essays. And most of the content on the homepage of the Lily are personal essays. There's like no section on like international affairs or like a section on, you know, uh, the economy. It's like these like dumbed down verticals that feel like really markety, like health and wellness, like something mm-hmm. you would read on the goop with like yeah. Gwyneth Paltrow. I don't know. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. I will bring out the nutcraft here, which is that the lily is not alone. There are many of these sites popping up either to build their entire business around a site that targets a particular demographic or to, you know, say the New York Times has launched a site called Women of the World. But one of our editors earlier today made the remark that it sort of reminds him of a bygone era with newspapers when they had what were called the women's pages, which I didn't know existed. And so I did a bit of research, and the first regular women's page in a newspaper appeared in the 1890s in the New York world, and they became staples of society coverage, food, fashion, whatever. On the one hand, this was the first time that many women could write for major newspapers. On the other hand, it put them into the pink ghetto, uh, you know, having a specific spot Mm -hmm. where women were only able to write for. And this uh, this eventually, over the course of time, maybe in the 60s and 70s, turned more into the fashion section or the style section, where you'd have you know women's yeah. issues appearing in the style section of a particular newspaper. Now it seems as if we're almost returning to that for business reasons. It's always been motivated by business. Oh, women don't read the newspaper, supposedly. So what's going to make them read the newspaper? Let's put in some women's pages and we can talk about, I don't know, ironing, how to look pretty. Like, what's the best girdle to wear and how to clean your home and still look great? It's also, like, I think just reflective of a larger trend that's been happening the last couple of years, which, like, as a feminist, I feel like yucky about it's like the commodification of feminism mm-hmm. and like women's empower, quote empowerment, right? It's like this idea that, oh, it's it's cool to be feminist now. It's cool to talk about these things. So like, let's make it into a a business venture, a like, vertical, a yeah. vertical, right? right. Yeah. And I think I think yeah. the Lily honestly is a great example of the commodification of feminism. Talking about the women's publications that I do like. I really love Bitch Media. Can I say bitch? I don't know. Yes, you absolutely can. You say it. Bitch Media. It's the name of the publication. publication. You can definitely say it. We're not the FCC. Um, So Bitch Media, the founder, uh, Andy Zeisler, I think is her, Zeigler? I'm not sure how to pronounce it. But she wrote this really great book about 
marketplace feminism. You know, that's been all over the place with like pink pussy hats in, you know, January with the Women's March. It's been like those like futurist female T-shirts. Here are these things that cost, you know, 20, 30, 40 plus dollars that are all about like making feminism cool. And like the Lily is kind of doing that. And I think a lot of other media ventures like Bustle, too. I have a lot of issues with Bustle. Also started by a man mm. who like ran like the Bleacher Report, so obviously he was all really? of it. Wow. Yeah, it's the same same company, and wow. so like for me, like that was like the definitive. You're doing this just to make a buck. And I think the most insulting thing about it has been and continues to be that what we normally read in newspapers that's maybe considered that's the status quo, but that's for men because they're not coming out with men's verticals. They're not coming out with fashion. T- yeah, I mean, there it's are called, men's... It's called vice. Yeah. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. yeah. They just don't get the label that it's a men's publication. It's just overwhelmingly mm-hmm. male-driven, operated by men, geared toward men, sold to male advertisers. Hence the sure. broadly vertical, exactly. which is their women's vertical. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> which still has men right for it. Like, yeah. So, like, yeah. It's not good either. So, so. no, no. <laughs> there, are issues, there are issues across the board. Um, <laughs> I think for me, like, in very simple terms, what makes a good and again, quote, women's publication, I don't even know what that means anymore, is something that expands what women's issues are and does not narrow them, right? And Mm -hmm. there was actually a really good quote from, I guess now she's the former editor-in-chief, Joanna Coles of Cosmopolitan magazine. Mm -hmm. When she took Cosmo over, she tried to like really insert more coverage of politics and international affairs and like all of these like, quote, male issues. Mm -hmm. And she summed it up in like, you know, women want to read about mascara and the Middle East. Like, I think there is a balance you can strike. Well, that's another place it gets tricky because like, right, we have we have men's magazines and we have women's magazines. We've had both for a long time. They both kind of have their like, you know, there are thoughtful men's magazines and there are thoughtful women's magazines, although less of them. Yeah. Women, of course, want to read about the Middle East and mascara. And I'm sure that men also want to read about the Middle East and m- Muscle building? Muscle milk. Muscle (laughs) milk. (laughs) We like alliteration here. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Love it. We all have these different sides to our personalities, right? And like everyone like wants something that has like substance and then something that is maybe like a little sillier or superficial or whatever. We all have those days. But the problem is that so often women's sites or verticals, magazines, whatever, they just appeal to the superficial side. They don't appeal to the deeper side. Maybe they each have their place. Maybe they can't really belong together so much. But if the Washington Post is putting out a vertical that they're trying to aim towards women, then that should not be one of those verticals that's about mascara. That's a vertical that should be about the Middle East. Right. You know, this sort of gets at one of the reasons I struggle with this issue. And I think it pertains also to any specialty media like, say, say black, traditionally black newspapers, for example, which is that there are clear benefits to having specialty media for any audience. We at CGR, we write for journalists or people who are sort of tangentially related to the media industry in some way. And, and there's huge benefits for that. You can get to a like, greater level of detail. You can relate with your audience, et cetera, et cetera. But at the end of the day, when you're talking about talent, like what actually makes a magazine good, like what allows a teen Vogue to write really good political stories, it's having good political writers. In many cases, the the great political writers who happen to also be female 
are gobbled up by more mainstream publications that aren't quote unquote women's publications. So you have Rebecca Traister, who's an awesome political writer who writes for New York Magazine mostly. You have Nicole Hannah Jones, awesome education writer who writes writes for the New York Times Magazine. In a perfect world, it'd be great to integrate those institutions, but we're obviously not in a perfect world. So how do you find the balance to make the non-mainstream institutions better, mm-hmm. but also trying to integrate you know, the mainstream institutions a little bit more. I mean, this bleeds into other issues about, yeah, the prestige of different kinds of outlets mm. and also the pay that different outlets mm. offer. I don't have these numbers in front of me, but I would not be surprised at all if women's publications or women's verticals are going to pay you less than the mainstream counterparts or whatever. This gets into a whole different issue, which is men are valued more than women are and things that are associated with men are valued more than things that are associated with women. That's reflected in every part of our culture and not just ours. Around the world, throughout history, it gets into a whole whole can of worms, Dave. <laughs> I think like, like what you were saying with like like the talent aspect. I think like you don't need the Nicole Hannah Jones or the Rebecca Tracer to go to Teen Vogue or to go to Bustle or any place like that. A lot of it can rest on the leadership there too. Teen Vogue has become infinitely better since they got new leadership. So like their editor-in-chief, I think it is Elaine Wenteroff, is like this really awesome young black woman. And then Philip Cacardi runs the politics vertical and was instrumental in getting that launched, you know, before Trump. Obviously, people are were like freaking out months ago when there was the whole gaslighting article by Lauren Duca. And everyone was like, when did Teen Vogue get so woke? And it was a little bit condescending because they've been doing it for actually a couple of years now. And I think that was directly tied to the switch in leadership at the company. So I think there's hope for publications like Teen Vogue and The Lily, all these different, quote, again, quote, women's publications based on the leadership that they get involved. Exactly. You need like a couple people on top who have experience in the industry who can help guide younger people who are starting out, or even if they're not younger, just can help guide things. It doesn't take a genius to make something that is, I don't know, at least respectful of its readership. For people out there who are interested in tapping into the women's market, whatever that is, or who are interested in covering women's issues, whatever your intentions, if you're trying to create a product that people are actually going to want to read and that is respectful to them and that's like actually like a valuable, high-quality product, I think the first place to start, this goes for so many things in life, treat others how you would want to be treated. Would you want to like read a vertical that was aggregating the post's daily information and creating like a new site that was really sleek looking and just highlighted stuff that was about, I don't know, fucking beard wax. Beard wax. (laughs) It all comes down to the beard wax. Always comes back to beard wax. Always comes back to beard wax. Is that really what you want? Is that a product that you would find stimulating and interesting and worth your time? Probably not, which is probably why it doesn't exist. So just think about what you would want. Like, how would you want to be considered and and treated in that situation? Extend that. That's how you find an audience. That's how you connect with people. Moving on to our next topic. Over the past seven years, Republicans have incessantly called for the repeal and replace of Obamacare. And those cries of action have finally come to a head over the past month as the Senate GOP has secretly pushed forward its plan to overhaul the American health care system. Now, I have an interview with an expert coming up, but I just want to apologize to you all beforehand. There was a police truck outside of our window, so there is a slight 
siren in the background. And I just want to say before this all that the cops were not coming for us. So without further ado, joining me now to parse how the media is or is not making sense of this historic moment is Trudy Lieberman, a longtime healthcare writer for CGR and other publications. Trudy, how's it going? Good. So you wrote a piece for CJR last week, basically arguing the that healthcare reporters need to cover this proposal to overhaul the healthcare system for the ground up. And you had this great line in there, which I think encapsulates a lot of what we in the media and what readers of the media are thinking. And you say, quote, what Washington journalists report is not necessarily what audiences in the rest of the country want or need to know. Unpack that for me a little bit. Too often, I think that the glimpse of what people outside of the Beltway, outside of New York City, tend to get of what's going on is kind of one-sided, and it's the one-sided view of Washington think. And we know that the think in Washington is often herd mentality kind of stuff, Sure. and people uh, tend to report what the next one is reporting, and so that sort of gets filtered down to places like Kansas and Kentucky. And I think the people in Kansas and Kentucky don't really care that much about who whispered what to who and who was coming out of what committee meeting. Right. I think what they really want to know is what is this proposal or what is this law, what is this amendment going to do for me? And too much of that, and I think historically this has always been the case, laws are made in secret. And in the end, most laws are made in the speaker's office or the uh, majority leader's office. And that's how the sausage gets made. But I think that journalists have an obligation, especially uh, now in healthcare, to go way beyond that. Right. That kind of reporting might have been useful or the norm, say, 40 years ago. But I think that there's been a change in journalism. And I think that the public expects more than that. Right. So it sounds like a a, a pretty classic politics versus policy divide. Many reporters in Washington feel very comfortable sort of getting into the political weeds of who said what and how political factions operate on the Hill and whatnot, whereas it's, it's more difficult in many cases for them to go deep into the weeds on policies, particularly on policy that affects different states in very different ways. So I'm curious, with your reporting on how different media outlets have covered this issue, I mean, how are local newsrooms approaching this, and how is that different from the way that the big players in Washington have taken looks at it? Well, I think that the the view on the ground with local reporters is very mixed, and I think the big thing that's happened between now and uh, uh, 2008, uh, when I was covering this for CJR. Actually, I began covering health care for CJR during the Clinton health plan. So now I've had an opportunity to observe the run-ups and the debates on three different ways that we were going to reform the U.S. health care system. And I think there has been a, a huge change, uh, certainly during the years of the Clinton years and, and certainly during most of the Obama time, that there was still a fairly large presence of local reporters who were covering health care. And even if there wasn't a health reporter, the politics reporter uh, pitched in, and there was uh, some attempt to kind of localize these stories. Uh, It wasn't always perfect, but at least there was somebody there to kind of look and see what is this likely to mean for me or my people uh, in Kentucky or Kansas. And I think that we all know that since then, the local media has shrunk considerably, and health reporters were among the first to be cut. 
And so that meant that if there was someone left to cover health, that person also had to cover four or five other beats. Sure. And health kind of uh, took a back seat. And they're not necessarily so well-versed in all of this. And it's interesting that you ask, because one of the people I was interviewing for the CJR piece is a reporter I've known for many years who has covered this in Montana. And I talked to him the other day, and, and, and fortunately for the people in Montana, he's still covering it for a TV network. And he was sharing with me that some of the stories that he's seen uh, out in Montana have been kind of... Uh, shallow they haven't really been in depth and uh, it's not necessarily the reporter's fault the reporter doesn't have time to make the additional calls necessary to kind sure. of put say a medicaid number in perspective can you unpack that a little bit more so giving me examples of how reporters are falling short if someone does not have the policy chops in healthcare or just doesn't have the time to make those calls to experts and whatnot i mean what are some of the things that that reporters might be missing about how a, a proposed bill might might have an effect on a, on a particular state they might say that there are so many people in the individual health insurance market and that's been, of course, the center of the debate because that's the, the nub of the Affordable Care Act right. that people in that market now have a easier access to coverage. They might pick up a number and a politician might say, oh, all these people were getting subsidies anyway, so what's really the big deal here? And the reality is that half of the people uh, who buy Obama compl- uh, Obamacare-compliant policies don't get any subsidies at all, and that's been an issue that has been woefully neglected by the press. So that somebody reading that in a state might think, well, you know, what's this whole thing about? We, you know, they're getting subsidies anyway, and I'm not getting a subsidy, so I'm kind of angry at those who do. And there's a lot of that kind of anger going on among the population. And I think that uh, that's not necessarily true. And the reporter doesn't have time to find out what the proportion of people in a state is actually getting a subsidy in that market. Another thing you mentioned in your pieces repeatedly and then, and then you know, earlier in our conversation as well is just with regard to transparency. Obviously, there's a lot of uh, opacity with how the sausage gets made in Washington and, and state capitals, obviously, as well. Um, but that's been particularly acute with this, uh, this version of the Senate health care bill. You asked the question in your reporting recently of how reporters can cover a moving target. I mean, how how has that gone this time around? Are there workarounds for it, or is this just a non-starter given that Senate Republicans have not been transparent about their processes here? Well, let me just say, first of all, that making the Obamacare uh, bill and the Clinton health care before always had some elements of secrecy going on. In sure. It. And I remember Hillary Clinton's health care plan was all done in secret for a long, long time. And there were these committees set up, and they were not uh, able to talk to the press, and they didn't. So the press didn't really have any idea what was being crafted. Right. And um, I think they would argue that there is a political imperative for them to do that exactly. to pass their bill. Right. And, you know, maybe that's true. Right. There was some of that, uh, t- to some extent, during the Obama Time. I mean, people didn't understand what was going on with the public option until Nancy Pelosi said it wasn't going to happen. Uh, but this time, what's happened is that the Republicans have crafted their bill in secret, pretty much because they know if they had done otherwise, the outcry would have come a lot sooner than mm. it came. And, you know, that might have been a very wise political move, but the reporters and the press got all uh, fussed about this. 
And the suggestions that I gave in the workarounds is that well, we know enough about what the big chunks of the bill are. So write this down and put those chunks down on paper and look at, you know, we know that pre-existing conditions are going to be affected. We know that this is going to be affected and so forth. And then put down underneath that what we know about each one and what the House bill will do and then what the Senate bill uh, would do as far as we know. And right now, because they're going back to the drawing boards, we don't really know, but we know enough about what they came out with last week right. so that we can actually construct this sort of table. And that, at a glance, will show you what the big issues are. And that alone should be the basis for asking questions about uh, what's really going to happen here. And I do want to add that from what I've learned about people who are at the town halls and people who in the country who are really upset about this, they want to know much more than talking points. And if you go back and look at the Greg Waldron town halls that occurred in March, people were actually really angry, and they said, you know, don't give us any more of this, you know, PR stuff. We want to know. And I think that, for me, it's been very gratifying to see that because I haven't seen that in any other uh, of the healthcare debates. I feel as if, at least on the national level, which is where I focus a lot of my attention on, there was a huge flurry of attention, uh, I believe last week when the Congressional Budget Office, which is sort of Congress's in-house ranking system for pieces of legislation, came out with its estimate on how this bill would fare. And it's, it's, it's essentially argued that by its best guess that 22 million people more than the current level would be uninsured over the next 10 years or so. Republicans in many cases have responded that the CBO is a partisan organization, which it is not, uh, that it has been inaccurate in the past. I'm curious from your perspective as someone who has done independent reporting on this, you've seen many CBO scores come and go. How accurate has it been in the past? And what do you make of GOP attempts to to, uh, discredit it wholesale? Well, I always rely on the CBO. That's the one organization whose work I do trust. Um, There are all kinds of numbers and all kinds of organizations, and they all put their spin on it, let's face it. But the CBO is probably the best we have. And so whenever I'm writing a piece and I'm looking for estimates and so forth, I always turn to the CBO. And this attack on the CBO um, is relatively new. And, And I look at it and I think that this is exactly what the Republicans are doing. They're trying to discredit the messenger here right? and cast doubt on it. And they're saying that it hasn't always been right. Well, no estimator of any of this stuff has been right 100% right. of the For time. For anything, right. And I think that um, what they're talking about is that when Obamacare passed, the CBO came out with a number of the number of people who would gain coverage and, and have insurance under Obamacare at various intervals after the law passed. And they were off. They were off for a few reasons, is that I think people underestimated the fact that people would flock to the marketplace and sign up, particularly young people. I think that was probably underestimated. And uh, people thought that the people in the individual market were so unhappy with their policies that they would be just so happy to get something else. And when they went to the exchanges and looked for something else, they often found these extremely high deductible policies, high Mm. cost sharing. 
and very high premiums sometimes, and they thought, you know, the calculus isn't worth it to me. I'm not getting any insurance. And so they didn't buy. And so there were a lot of problems in that regard. And the other thing that was estimated was that a lot of um, employers would drop coverage and people would go into the individual market. And that assumption on the part of the framers of Obamacare turned out to be wrong, that the employers did not drop coverage. They retained their employer-based coverage, and people didn't have any need to go into the individual market. So all of that affected the CBO's estimate. Mm. So I think when you look at it, you see there are some pretty important reasons why that number is off, but that doesn't have anything to do uh, with the inherent ability of the CBO to come up with numbers. And so what's going on here is just uh, a disinformation campaign kind of thing to attack the agency and its credibility. Right. So, so correct me if I'm wrong here on the CBO score. They projected something like $800 billion in reduced Medicaid spending over the coming decade. Republicans have spun it in a way in a lot of news coverage, basically framing that as not a cut to Medicaid because spending will actually increase. It just reduces the rate of the increases. Is, is there any truth to that, that spin? It's, it's appearing in a lot of coverage, or is that just an outright lie? It's spin, and it is. this has been around... Since I've noticed it since the mid-1990s. Mm. And what happened in the mid-1990s when the Republicans uh, were in charge in about 95, 96, they were going after Medicare, and they wanted to cut the spending in Medicare. So there was a proposal on the table of, that John Kasich, now governor of Ohio, had come up with to actually cut Medicare. And when word leaked out to the press, the press grabbed on this because Medicare is a very popular program. People would want to know about it, so forth. Um, And what the Republicans did was enforce the language that the press used. And I have reported all of this in a book I wrote at the time called Slanting the Story That Forces to Shape the News. And what they did, they would raise, as Haley Barber said, who was, I think, the GOP chairman at the time, said, we're going to raise uh, unsured hell with any reporter who doesn't get this straight. We're not cutting Medicare. We're just cutting the rate of growth. So there is a TV segment from that era, <clears throat> CBS. You see the reporter on there st- uh, stammering and struggling to get her words right. She said, it's not, not, not a cut. It's a growth, growth, uh, rate of growth cut. <laughs> and it was just painful. Right. But they've dusted off this old... Um, uh, way of approaching this and are trying to convince people that, you know, there's no cut here. There is going to be a cut. You can't cut $830 billion out of a program and not affect the services that they give to people. So as it stands now, it looks like the Senate GOP has pushed back further action on this possible bill until after the 4th of July, after the holiday, which gives some buffer time between now and then. I feel like in a lot of these situations, when there is a lull in the action, the news coverage obviously wanes. There was a great New Republic critique maybe a week or two ago about the media's bias toward new news and how that has helped Republicans um, sort of advance this bill with little public scrutiny. I'm, I'm curious if you if you see, you know, in your reporting, in your view of the coverage, do you see momentum in terms of aggressively looking at this bill and its effects? Do you see that 
increasing? Is there a crescendo of coverage? Or are you worried that, you know, like I am, that there might be a lull in it, just given that the, that we are approaching a hol- holiday weekend and, and attention might be, you know, thrust elsewhere? You know, there was a lull after the House passed its bill. I think coverage did kind of taper off for a while, but it came back. And I, what I'm sensing now, I think this might be different. I'm mm. saying, I'm thinking now that there's so much momentum going on among the grassroots, and people are so energized, and they smell that they've had a victory. I mean, they have had a victory. This, this thing didn't pass yesterday. Right. And they are going to have to come, go back and rewrite uh, the bill, and now more and more uh, GOP senators are saying they don't like it. So... I, I would guess that this will continue. I'm expecting it to continue. Trudy Lieberman, thanks so much for being on the show, and we look forward to more of your CGR pieces on this topic going forward. Thank you. That was our show. Thank you so much for kicking with us. I want to give a special thanks to my CGR colleagues, Meg Dalton, Christy Chisholm, and our healthcare correspondent, Trudy Lieberman. Subscribe to our show on iTunes, on SoundCloud, on Overcast, wherever you get your shows, and please leave us a comment and share this recent episode. We really appreciate your help in that regard. Thank you so much again for kicking with us. I'll see you next week.